balance sheet, bank, credit, business cannot be thinking in terms of number of customers. I can have a million customers tomorrow. I stand on the street corner, I hand out $100 bills, I'll have a million customers immediately. I'll do amazing turnover. Yeah, everybody will take You might never see the money again. But exactly, exactly. So that's, that's the whole <laughs> point, right? Like in a credit business, the dumbest ass metric you could ever use is number of customers. <laughs> you know, like there's many other metrics, but like that one is you don't use, right? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech, business, and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Greg Krasna, founder and CEO at Tonic, the first and largest neobank in the Philippines, which officially started operating in 2021 and has since reached almost $150 million in consumer deposits and is backed by Mizuho Sequoia, Point72, Insignia, and many more. It's also worth mentioning Greg is a Ukrainian serial entrepreneur. And about a decade ago, he built Platinum Bank in Ukraine and sold it once it became the third largest consumer bank in the nation. We recorded this episode on Tuesday, February 22nd, roughly 24 hours before Russia invaded Ukraine. Today, Ukraine is under attack, and during this horrific and difficult times for Greg's country, my heart goes out to him, Tonic's Ukrainian team, and their families. They are a resilient nation with incredibly talented people, and Greg and Tonic represent these values. If you are looking for ways to provide any type of support to the Ukrainian people, I've included a couple of links in this week's show notes. All right. Well, Greg, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast and welcome, I'm guessing, all the way from Singapore. Is that right? That's right, sir. And Miguel, great to be with you again. Thanks a lot for um, having me on the podcast. Absolutely. It's always a, a pleasure to hear uh, the voice of experience in, in the banking space, right? Uh, and, and so, Greg, maybe that's, that's where we can start. Uh, maybe tell us a little about Tonic, but also... I know that this is not your first rodeo. You've built banks in the past, uh, in other parts of the world. You've been in fintech in Southeast Asia. So what are some of the lessons, past lessons that you have applied into building Tonic? And also, what have you learned over the last couple of years? Wow, that's a really loaded question, man. Uh, how much time we got? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're asking me to talk Starting about strong. myself and my experience, which is obviously everybody's favorite subject, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right. Um, no, look, uh, Tonic is, um, uh, we're the first uh, digital bank in the Philippines. Uh, we've been very fortunate to have secured early on, like three years ago, uh, kind of close sandbox partnership with a regulator to help them develop a framework for a digital bank license. So we were kind of their guinea pig, and um, uh, we have the first digital bank license in the country, literally, as a result of that partnership. So they, they've now granted a few more of these, uh, so we know that there's competition that's going to be coming up probably sometime later this year uh, going live. But we've been live now with our clients for a year. Uh, we now have onboarded more than 200,000 clients. Our consumer deposits have really rocketed up. Well above our expectations, we're now uh, about to cross $130 million of consumer deposits. Uh, we started lending 
which is actually our core business, you know, is, is making loans. That's our core monetization. And uh, we're really looking forward to continuing to scale and, you know, really broadening our product range, et cetera. The reason I'm doing Tonic is, as you say, you know, I've kind of been in around finance, consumer finance and uh, fintech, a part of it for uh, for many years now. I've built and sold before a bank in Eastern Europe uh, with the backing of IFC and some international private equity investors. The bank, you know, was in Ukraine. We built it into a number three consumer lender in the country with a full bank license. So we're also financing ourselves with deposits. Lots of lessons learned. You know, obviously, uh, Ukraine, especially getting the headlines now, a very volatile place. So as a, uh, you know, CEO for, I think, nine years of that, uh, you go through a few dips and you learn your lessons and you get your scars. So uh, uh, then, you know, after I did that, I, I came to Asia almost a decade ago now, I think. And uh, uh, I started building fintechs here. And I founded or co-founded four other fintechs before I uh, got to Tonic. Uh, that portfolio has done actually quite well. You know, one of them we exited uh, already. You know, a couple are now, like, recognized international leaders in their space. Uh, but my learning was that, you know, the market opportunity for consumer lending and closing that gap on financial inclusion here in the region it's enormous. You know, just like in the Philippines alone, we're talking about consumer finance market currently being, you know, $10 billion asset class. And just on very, very straightforward per capita or percentage of GDP comps to other emerging markets, it needs to be anywhere between 50 and $100 billion. So that's like a 5 to 10x growth. And, you know, the numbers are with lots and lots of zeros. So, you know, and within that role, you're going to have a major role of fintech to address that need because basically traditional banks don't know how to close the gap. They don't have the skills, you know, to scale quickly to these clients, reach out to them with reasonable customer acquisition cost, to be able to use alternative data for credit scoring to really kind of drive your cost of risk down on these, you know, new to credit clients to do, you know, very efficient servicing at a low per unit price point, which means lots and lots of automation. So all of these parts of like the value chain of consumer lending, that's all fintech. And the biggest challenge is uh, funding. Because again, you're not talking about 10 million bucks, 20 million bucks, you know, where you can get a credit line here and there, you know, from a bank or from insurance company to finance your portfolio. You're talking about billions worth of balance sheet to be had. And the only way to do that is with retail deposits and liabilities. So that was like my learnings. You know, I was actually a co-founder. Among those fintechs I co-founded was one of the first digital lenders in uh, in the Philippines uh, called Terra247. So Terra247, you know, we were fortunate enough to find an exit, but basically, you know, the company, after six months of product in the market, was throwing off fantastic product-level profitability, but we just couldn't get the debt to scale the balance sheet for the life of us. And, you know, lessons learned that, okay, so let's, Let's try it differently. Let's try it with a bank license. Uh, let's try to get deposits and marry the deposits, the consumer deposits, which are a $300 billion market in the Philippines already. Uh, let's marry that with that consumer lending premise. And so that's what we did. That's that's a story that we approached the central bank with. We really had a very um, kind of big meeting, eye to eye in Kumbaya around this. You know, they're very much aligned on their strategic objective of solving financial inclusion. And, you know, our desire to go into that space with this premise and with our experience. Um, so, yeah, I've been very, very fortunate to, to, to get that alignment with the regulator. And here we are today. So, 
Greg, I remember last time we spoke on one end, of course, traditional incumbent banks, they're, they're not serving a big chunk of the population. And we talked about that. But we also talked about the fact that a lot of challenger banks, you don't think are approaching the problem in the right way. And then you are a credit guy. You're a credit first guy. And, and I remember that was a big part of our conversation. Sounds like that is still the strategy that you're pursuing. Um, so maybe tell us about, you know, why credit first and, you know, how have you perfected your credit models across different geographies? Sure, sure. Um, that's, if there's one thing that keeps me awake at night, it's credit risk, right? Because that's what makes or breaks a consumer finance proposition. The way that we're addressing uh, the credit risk issue is very different from the way that it has been traditionally addressed or the way it's currently being addressed by the banks in the Philippines. You know, there is a credit bureau in the Philippines. And in that credit bureau, last I checked, there were about four or five million records. More than half of them are actually duplicates. So, uh, you know, effectively what you have is like top two, three percent of the population is running around with like a couple of credit cards in their wallet, you know, a mortgage and a personal loan. <laughs> and like nobody else can get a loan. And it becomes a case 22, right, where none of the other guys like you don't have a credit history. The bank will not lend to you. And if the bank hasn't lent to you, you ain't got credit history. So like how do we get people to kind of break out of the cycle? Well, the only way to do that, and this is something that, you know, I've done, you know, previously in Eastern Europe and then a couple of the, you know, uh, fintechs that I started, you know, in, in, in Southeast Asia, they had to do with that, with the credit part of the value chain. You use big data. You use uh, advanced uh, predictive analytics. Uh, and you layer on top of that, you know, machine learning approaches, et cetera, to really kind of automate the hell out of keeping those scorecards up to date and uh, very, very uh, well performing. And at this point, there's like, you know, we're all leaving this, you know, tremendous digital footprint out there. Uh, and that's exactly what this whole, you know, Snowden and NSA thing has been all about, right? That we're, you know, the governments are mining that. So, like, why can't we mine that as, you know, bankers, but for the benefit of the client, as opposed to for, you know, restricting personal freedoms and all that. <laughs> so, um, that's, uh, uh, I think that's, that's a real big direction that the world has moved into in the last, you know, five to ten years. And, you know, the stuff that we're using, for example, we're using telco footprint. Uh, you know, we're plugged at this point into both of the telcos in the Philippines. We're using um, the device footprint, so the, the smartphone device. Um, you know, the customer gives us permissions to use the device footprint for credit reasons only. And, you know, we delete the data immediately after we've analyzed it. But basically, um, uh, and we're also using, of course, the normal, you know, demographics. We're using the customer behavior on the app. So there are multiple, multiple sources of data that come together and enable us to, you know, do the R squares on them and, you know, do our kind of predictions of who is a good customer, who is a bad customer. And that is the kind of know-how that traditional banks, you know, in places like Philippines uh, have not really built in-house. So, you know, I had a great conversation, you know, so, so for example, one of the companies that I co-founded called Credilab. These guys are now one of the market leaders globally in using digital device footprint for the embedded scoring. And they've gotten out to like 25 countries, you know, they got over 100 clients uh, of like, you know, big lenders uh, that they're working with. And so, you know, with that company, you know, we went around and we talked to a bunch of CROs with my co-founder, uh, you know, and I remember this great conversation with a lot of big banks in the Philippines with a CRO. And we're like, what is your, you know, time to yes? 
And he's like, oh, it's really good. It's only two weeks. <laughs> like, okay. So like, <laughs> what is, and you know, this is like throwing me back to Ukraine, you know, the bank that I had built over there where, you know, our TTY had to be 60 seconds or we would lose the client. <laughs> so it's just like, you <laughs> two know. Two weeks was not going to cut it. Yeah, two weeks is just like, and, and, and then we're like, okay, so what are you using in terms of predictive analytics? You got any scorecards, et cetera? And the guy's like, yeah, well, you know, like one of our board members like told us to use this, you know, consulting company from India a while ago. You know, they came in with a bunch of PhDs, you know, crunched our numbers, came up with some scorecards. Uh, so we got these scorecards as part of our credit assessment process. But to be honest, we're not really sure that they work real well. So we kind of, you know, like we, we prefer, you know, our old school way of like, you know, kind of analyzing the client and calling their employer and all that stuff. And so that's what you got, right? So when you don't have the, the guys in the CRO level function that are not uh, skilled in these data analytics and the digital footprint analytics and don't trust that, you cannot go into the small ticket uh, product. You know, we're talking like ticket, you know, from a hundred to a thousand bucks, right? You can still maintain, you know, your old school process when you're lending 10,000 bucks, right? But you just can't do that when you're lending 500 bucks to a guy that is standing in a store and wants to take the TV home on credit, right? You just can't do that. You need, you need to be in that 60 second window right? uh, or he's going to walk out um, and then get upset. So um, those are the skills we're bringing to the table here, and we think we're differentiating with that approach in the Philippines. Uh, we're one of the first guys to try and do this at scale. We started our lending, uh, you know, we launched in Q4 last year, we launched our cash loan product in the app. It's uh, we call it Quick Loan, and literally the, the, the approval is, you know, instant. So basically the biggest problem we had there with clients was, you know, the ones that got rejected were getting pissed off that we reject them too fast. So, you know, like, they're like, <laughs> like you didn't even me. look at me. Yeah, exactly. Well, how dare you? You know, you don't even consider me. You know, what the hell? You know, like, <laughs> so we got like a lot of that on Facebook. So, um, uh, you know, we have to kind of think creatively there and then, you know, try to, you know, even in some cases, like pretend that we're looking longer, <laughs> you know, because like we don't want to laugh at that, right? Um, so, uh, uh, but like, yeah, that's, it's a very fast approval and we're now refining our credit models. You know, we got, uh, you know, we call it like our R&D vintage, right? R&D vintage out in November, December. Uh, we stopped producing in mid-December, uh, like put a bunch of all those fixes that we've learned uh, in place in January. And we're now kind of uh, in February, we're restarting that and starting to scale a little bit. And of course, the numbers now, the risk numbers are a lot better than the numbers that we got in Q4. And over time, they will continue improving because it's a it's an iterative quantitative process that you have to run. So let's talk a bit about your, your management style. I know the audience likes to hear some management lessons. And first of all, how many people at Tonic today and as the company has evolved, how have you adapted as a, as a leader? Yeah, we, we've grown very fast. And we're actually um, way higher in headcount right now than I like because we need to be more automated. But in the early days, like first year or two, you basically need to have uh, humans in a lot of the ops processes in what we call the ops factory because you're still uh, developing the processes and the processes are changing a lot. And it's much faster to change them on the fly with people than with IT. So basically, it's once the processes are more stable, uh, then you can um, actually automate them. And then, you know, going forward, your efficiency in terms of, you know, all the 
kind of FTE ratios, you know, number of FTE per client, per dollar balance sheet, et cetera, that stuff starts going down. Yeah. So again, I, you know, I've been through that game before a couple of times, right? Um, and so for us, uh, you know, right now we're at 500 FTE, uh, which is, you know, over 300 are in Manila and, you know, uh, most of the rest is in India where we do our R&D. And then we have a small uh, headquarters in Singapore where we keep kind of some of the more like architecture and uh, business analytics focused part of our IT team. And, uh, you know, with 500 FTE, I think, you know, my role has gone a lot more from, you know, being very prescriptive in what I do, because in the early days when you're an entrepreneur at a startup, you just kind of, you know, you're the guy calling the shots and you basically say, okay, this is where we're on, let's run. You know, and, you know, you need a team, you need to build a team and the team needs to be aligned with your own values, but you can still keep the strategic planning process, for example, very much to yourself. Whereas now that we have a team and, you know, under that team, there's a lot of, you know, next layer of management. You know, we have something we call the partnership group. So most of our uh, top and middle managers, most of them are part of the ESOP. So we talk to each other that we're partners, right? We're all partners in the business. Um, so that group is now close to 40 people. And so when you get that, uh, you know, the buying of the group and the buying of the people that need to be executing uh, becomes a lot more critical. And the way that you get the buying is to actually broaden your strategic planning process. And so that's kind of the phase that we're at right now, where we're starting to take, you know, a lot more group thinking into, you know, the types of products we roll out, with what type of time frame we do what, you know, what we do in the next six months, what we do in the following six months. So we just had, for example, our first session where we literally, we had a group strategy process for the next semi-annual period instead of just like Greg saying, hey, this is where we're at, you know. So I think this, this is what changes. What also changes is I need to be, and my leadership needs to be a lot more now about talking about values and making sure that those values are like deeply, deeply ingrained in all of our HR processes. Because I do not lead anymore by example insofar as there's very few people in the organization that actually get to see what I do. So, you know, I need to be like, you know, the, the, the patriarch of the family talking about here's how we do things at Tonic. And, you know, here's why we do it like this. And if you do it like this, you'll be rewarded. And if you don't do it like this, then the rest of the family is going to spank you. So basically, uh, that's, you know, so for example, last week was the first time that I was actually able to go to Manila in the last two years. It's incredible. Yeah, because like it's been, it's, it's crazy, right? And we went like from 10 heads to like 300 heads in Manila in that period <laughs> of time, right? And actually the whole week, like 90% of what I did is being up there on stage, you know, in front of the teams and the teams kept changing because I wanted to make sure I talked to smaller teams and get some interaction going. But like delivering the same message, like, okay, here's who Greg is, here's who Tonic is, and here's how we do things at Tonic. And actually, the, the third part was, you know, a huge chunk of the whole conversation. Yeah, no, that's crazy. I think last time we spoke, you were definitely under 50, maybe, maybe less. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, given that you have these massive teams in, in two different cultures, what cultural nuances have you had to overcome or, or navigate from a corporate management point of view? Um, I'd say, um, you know, there are two challenges that we had. One just had to do with the uh, fully remote work that we were forced to adopt. You know, we onboarded like 500 people. Most of them, you know, like 
didn't even see each other or you like, you know, the guy that wasn't boarding them or whatever. So even like last week, as I told you, like in Manila, right, I was bringing people finally into like this conference room setting. And then, you know, a bunch of them like looking at each other, who the hell are you, you know, like, <laughs> I've never seen you, right? Because they, they've been in these silos, right, and haven't had opportunity to integrate. Now, the problem that that creates for an organization that innovates is when you try to innovate, you have two vectors and they're running opposite each other. There's a corporation vector and there's a conflict vector. And, and you can't avoid, like that's just the way that innovation happens. Now, in the remote environment, fostering constructive conflict is really hard because people, when they haven't had a chance to gel with each other and like really become a team and feel, you know, it's so easy to flip somebody off when you're on Zoom. Because like, you don't run the risk of the guy sitting across the table is gonna freaking punch you in the face, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like, um, and, and you don't know how big he is even, you know, like so, uh, most of the time, but we've only seen the face, right? So I think uh, that's that's been one of the biggest challenges, you know, that we haven't integrated the teams. And now that things are opening up, uh, we actually, you know, we've agreed with our top team that we're going to put huge amount of effort and money now into like getting people gelled, you know, on a cross-country basis, especially like project teams, you know, we've got people in Singapore and in India and in the Philippines. We got, you know, some people here and there, some people in Ukraine, we got, a, you know, some people in Indonesia, you know, one guy in Ho Chi Minh, you know, we, we just need to like start bringing them together physically um, to enable that integration of karaoke, beers, all that stuff, right? So uh, that's one part that's been a big challenge. Another part is that culturally, we're very, very different from either a bank or a fintech. Um, we need to blend the culture of those two worlds because we are a regulated financial institution and we need to do things to a different level of reliability and redundancy you know than a typical startup but at the same time we need to innovate and we need to be you know out there like doing our crazy stuff you know with branding and with products and all that stuff right and we can't be held back by you know all these people like in traditional banks risk and compliance going no you cannot do that you know like we need to figure out how to blend those two cultures. So that's been another challenge. And our, you know, our values, they reflect this kind of inherent conflict. You know, one of our values, you know, we have this teamwork, we have reliability, which is like you don't get more core banking like value than reliability, right? But at the same time, you know, we got sense of humor. We're the only bank I'm aware of that has actually sense of humor as one of its five corporate values. <laughs> we have something we call street smart. You know, which is like you pivot, you you innovate, you kind of you you create and iterate, and you use your experience rather than just formulaically saying this is the way we've always done it. Right? One mantra that I you know give to our employees all the time is, guys, I never ever ever want to hear a phrase, this is how we've always done it. <laughs> you know, because like you all come you know from <laughs> banks, etc., and you all have your preconceived notions, but you know uh, you're here to use your brain, you know, to figure out okay. What I've learned in the past, what's the right way to apply it to Tonic's model, to Tonic's clients, to Tonic's business? And so this is, you know, this conflict has been interesting to manage because, you know, some people we have, you know, they come from very traditional banking backgrounds, but then we'll look for people who will be motivated by wanting to do something new and create something new. That's one of the like prerequisites for getting into Tonic, actually, like you need to have that mindset. And I think so far, like, we've probably done a decent job at that because we've been able to really give to market something very innovative, but at the same time, you know, keep a fantastic relationship with the regulator. So 
Greg, you, you mentioned past experiences. In a past life, you, you were both a private equity investor yeah. and also a venture capital investor. Right. Yeah, well, venture builder, I'd say, you know, it's a little venture different builder. Yeah, than, than venture capital investor. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but, you know, close cousin. So uh, how, ha- how have those experiences guided your fundraising process? Because, you know, you have the local and regional funds in Southeast Asia, and then you have the global funds, and you've been successful at, uh, you know, securing and attracting both. Right. Maybe tell us about the fundraising journey. And I'm sure it wasn't easy. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thanks. Miguel. We've been very, very blessed with the types of investors we've been able to bring in. You know, we really have an amazing group now. And especially, you know, also after last round, you know, the Series B we just closed. Like we brought in a top 10 Asian bank, Zuho, into, you know, minority stake in, in Tonic. Also guys like, you know, Process and DST, you know, uh, major like fintech backers globally. Sequoia, obviously Sequoia, Insignia, Point72, iGlobe, you know, I can go on, right? Some of the best, like, top names in, like, regional VC, as well as global fintech investors. And I'd say that, you know, the, the group was a little bit, you know, pre-selecting itself because I was actually more focused on trying to talk to people outside of Southeast Asia because my fundraising implied that familiarity with the global comps and understanding of how consumer finance has evolved in other places in the world, just because Southeast Asia was so super early. You know, and a lot of the local funds, they haven't seen it. And not having seen it, like, they weren't, you know, they wouldn't get what I was talking about. And also, that, like, because it's banking. You know, in banking, you know, you can't be talking about number of customers as a relevant metric. You know, and unfortunately, a lot of the Internet businesses, like, that's a question they ask themselves, you know, how quickly can I have a million customers? You know, as soon as the VC asked me a question, hey, how quickly are you going to have a million customers? I would almost have to blacklist them, man. But like, you know, that meant I will have trouble with them on my board, right? Because, you know, we're just not going to be allied. A balance sheet bank credit business cannot be thinking in terms of number of customers. I can have a million customers tomorrow. I stand on the street corner. I hand out $100 bills. I'll have a million customers immediately. I'll do amazing turnover. Yeah, everybody will take. You might never see the money again, but exactly, exactly. So that's that's (laughs) the whole point, right? Like in a credit business, the dumbest ass metric you could ever use is number of customers. (laughs) You know, like there's many other metrics, but like that one is you don't use, right? Because then you 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 disregard credit, you disregard a bunch of other stuff, right? So um, I'm just saying, like, we needed to find the types of investors that would kind of get that. And we're very lucky that, you know, even here in the region, we found some some fantastic uh, investors that, that we're working with now uh, that get that side of things. But we're also balanced out with a lot of global guys. And, and right now, to me, the access that that gives us is incredible because I can, you know, between them, the guys that I have in my cap table, they probably backed you know, 70, 80 percent of all the fintech unicorns globally. Uh, and basically, if I want to reach out to, you know, one of the unicorn fintechs in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in wherever, you know, I just like figure out which one of my investors did that. You know, I pick up the phone and I'm like, guys, can you connect me? And we've done that. And that's really been tremendous for us on a few occasions when it really helped us reshift our focus on certain issues and then, you know, saved us a lot of trouble of like running in the wrong direction. 
Yeah, yeah, no, you have some amazing names, some former podcast guests, I should say. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, the region outside of the U.S. that I cover the most closely is Latin America. And there's a lot of parallels in between Latin America and Southeast Asia. And, and I'm sure, you know, you when you talk to founders from other regions, you can learn a lot. Speaking of learning, Greg, we, we have a good number of entrepreneurs tuning in or, or people who are about to take the, the leap, right, into building. I, I think this whole episode is a good lesson for them. But, you know, any, any reflections that you like to share for those, you know, just at the beginning of their journey? Yeah, this is, um, I've been asked that actually just like a couple of days ago and, you know, made me think. And, you know, my, the answer I give on that is make sure you know what your weaknesses are and build your team to like overcompensate for that. And actually a good leader, and this is something most entrepreneurs forget, like, that the good leader doesn't need to be the smartest guy in the room. You know, in fact, sometimes it's really bad when the entrepreneur thinks he's the smartest guy in the room uh, among his team. Because, like, it takes a team to lift something that, you know, is sizable and, you know, will really have legs to grow. And in my private equity days, I've actually seen, you know, entrepreneurs that can't make that transition from, like, being a really small startup guy to being a manager of an organization with over 100 FTEs. Because it's just a different mindset. Uh, you really need to then focus on, you know, different leadership competencies. And the number one of those competencies is making sure you know what your weaknesses are, you build a team to kind of, that is better than you are at whatever it is that they do. And then you become and the guy that runs the orchestra as opposed to the guy that solos, right? So you no longer should be soloing. What you should be doing is really effectively making sure the orchestra all plays together to the same kind of, energy to the same, uh, whatever time beat, uh, you know, there are all these elements you coordinate, uh, as a leader. So that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, when you think that you're going to be the, the guy on top there and like telling everybody what to do. Yeah. If that's your mentality, then maybe you're better off like at some point, just like stepping back and letting somebody step in that can be more inclusive in the decision pattern and make sure that there are smart people coming into the team. And in this journey, right, in this entrepreneurial journey, who, who have been some of the most consequential and helpful, impactful people uh, specifically for you? Um, I've been super, super lucky, you know, to, to have had people like, you know, both investor people that like I've really, really learned from a lot. You know, my, my board members currently, my board members, you know, at my for example, the bank I built in Ukraine, you know, the guys that backed me, uh, you know, into into that, the largest fund that was invested in me, they're the largest fund in Ukraine. So I'm actually still in touch with those guys. And, you know, the guy that was my chief board member, he's an investor in, in Tonic as well, it was his private money, uh, which is like the best, like, validation I could possibly get, right? So as well as my teammates, you know, so when I started Platinum, you know, the, the bank in Ukraine, I was a private equity guy that was transitioning into management. I didn't know hardly anything about what it meant to be a leader of people. You know, for 10 years before that, the most I've ever run was like, um, you know, a couple of analysts, uh, you know, making financial models, <laughs> right? So like 
and and then you think that the world starts and ends in PowerPoint and Excel, and it freaking doesn't. Right? Like, <laughs> and the real world actually has nothing to do with PowerPoint and Excel, and everything to do with people. And so, you know, that's that's something that I've I've been very fortunate that the guys I had hired into my team at Platinum, and you know, and even now, like I learn from them every single day. You know, the guys know their stuff. They've been managers in a particular side of consumer finance for a very long time, typically, and you know they're, they're way better at risk or ops or finance or compliance or whatever it is that they do. They're like so much better that like even me questioning their judgment there is like okay, they have twenty years experience, you have a couple of years experience in, in, at a very superficial level, right? So that's that's been something that I think. For me, it's really helped. This is learning from you know the guys I work with, the guys that have invested in me, and created a, a lot of learning for me, and I'm very grateful for that. Outstanding. Well, Greg, could not thank you enough for joining again and educating all of us on on the great things that you're doing on on the Tonic rocket ship, and also what's going <laughs> on in <laughs> in Southeast Asia fintech, which is very exciting. And you know, I, I hope. Uh, at some point, we can meet up in person. I'll have to visit Singapore. Likewise, Miguel. Likewise. We'd love to uh, get together and have a beer. And thanks a lot for having me on the podcast again. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Greg Krasnov, founder of Tonic Bank. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and truly, truly means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armaso.